Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the history of the cards. Bonus episode 2 Monasticism in Late Antiquity Egypt. This episode is heavily indebted to the Coptic Christian Heritage book, especially the chapter about monasticism, written by Sister and Dr. Louis Farag, a nun herself was a doctorate in theology. I have written a review of the book on my blog as a recommended reading for August. If you are interested in knowing more information about the subject, I recommend you check out the book. The year is 250 AD. In the sake of the 3rd century crisis, the Roman Empire is on the brink of collapse. Decius is in charge and decides that Christianity is a problem and begins the first empire-wide systemic persecution. Back in Egypt, deep in the heartland, in Cebes, a 15-year-old orphaned boy is about to be handed to the authorities by his brother-in-law for being a Christian, and also having an inheritance that the brother-in-law wishes to keep. The boy runs away to the desert, where he was able to find a cave that was shaded by a palm tree and had a water spring in it. The palm tree provided him his food and clothing, and the spring fresh water. The boy then lived completely alone in a life of prayer and meditation for more than 90 years until, guided by a vision, St. Anthony the Great found him just before he died. And once they met, the boy, who is an elderly man by now, above a hundred years old, welcomed St. Anthony, and then he died shortly, with St. Anthony burying him. The boy is known as St. Paul the Hermit, or Paul of Cebus and other sources. His story was written down by Jerome, an influential monk living in Jerusalem within 20 years or so, from Ball's dust. The year is 300 AD. An Egyptian aristocrat named Marcus has only one daughter, named Demiana. Demiana requested from her father to build her a house where she can live in a life of seclusion dedicated to prayers and meditations. Her father agrees, and soon, 40 other women join her. But then the great persecution starts, and Marcus, her father, fearing the loss of his position and possible deaths, 
offers sacrifice to the idols and denies Christ. Demiana, when she found out, rebuked her father for his weak face and encouraged him to publicly declare the face. Once the world gone out, Demiana and her community of brutal nuns were targeted and all of them were martyred. The stories of Paul of Cebus and Demiana are more or less hagiography. I have retold their stories not to examine their lives as historical figures, but rather to explore the slow development of monasticism over time. They served as a way stop on the long road of the formation of the movement that is known as Christian monasticism. After Paul and Demiana came the two giants that forever changed the Christian world, St. Anthony and St. Athanasius. St. Anthony became known as the father of monasticism, and St. Athanasius wrote down his biography and turned his life into a late antiquity bestseller. Their contributions lay not in the development of monasticism per se, as we saw with the story of St. Paul and Demiana, but rather in making it a popular lifestyle that is to be emulated by the serious Christian. As mentioned before, monasticism took many years to take form and continues to evolve to this day. In its purest form, monasticism is a response to Christ's call to follow him and to be perfect in a very specific way. In the beginning, men and women who responded to the call lived a holy life in their homes or on the outskirts of their towns. One of these men was St. Anthony. In a critical stage of his life, after his parents' death, he entered the church for a liturgy on Sunday with an open heart and mind. There, he heard the Gospel of Matthew 19.21. If you want to be perfect, sell your positions for a treasure in heaven and follow me. St. Anthony took that message to heart. Then he went and sold all of his positions and entrusted his sister to a house of those proto-nuns similar to the house of Demiana. Then, slowly, he moved from his house to the outskirts of town and finally to the deep desert to live completely in seclusion. He was not the only one. But due to his charisma and spirituality, many flocked to him for all kinds of advice. Some of his visitors, impressed by what he was doing, decided to stay with him. They became his disciples, and their community became the first monastery. Two of his disciples, Amun and Macarius, went on to found their own communities. But unlike St. Anthony, where his community was deep in the eastern desert, they set up there in the more accessible western desert, in the wilderness of Sicides for St. Macarius and Nitria for St. Timon. There is a map posted on the podcast blog and social media to help you go along. After these two disciples, the next step of monastic evolution began. Their monasteries were centered around a church. 
monks would live in solitude Monday through Friday and then gather on Saturday and Sundays around the church. Those monks answered to their leader and they had specific manual jobs to support themselves on the monastery. Basket weaving in cicadas and salt extraction for nitria. In Abar Egypt, a different tradition was independently being formed. Similar to St. Antony, an early adopter of monasticism named Balamon was becoming a popular figure in his community, and the local population was flocking to him for advice, with some of them staying on as disciples. One of his disciples was a formal soldier named Bachomius. After learning how a monk should live from Balamon, Bachomius went on to an abandoned village and established a community based on what he learned from Balamon and from the Roman army. It was nothing like what Amun and Macarius were doing. This was to be a new form of monasticism. After several years experimenting, Bachomius's community was organized as a cooperative brotherhood on the lines of a Roman army camp. The community was to have common work, common meals, and common prayers. Strict rules were laid down, and the monasteries were in essence a small self-sufficient independent villages with collective ownership of resources. Sort of what would you expect if Karl Marx was a deeply religious monk? By the time St. Bachomius died, he had established nine monasteries for men and two for women. When that second generation died, monasticism as a movement was exploding, and if we were to believe the ancient, sometimes exaggerated sources, Monastic communities were around every village of Egypt, and the St. Bachomius Federation alone had more than 50,000 monks in it. That would translate to a total number of monks around 100,000, which would be around 2.5 to 5% of the population. A huge amount, especially if you consider that they are giving up all of their positions and renouncing material life for a life of celibacy and poverty. Even if we accept that the 50,000 is an exaggeration by Jerome, it is clear from other sources that the numbers were in the thousands. One of these sources is the Historia Mancorium, a book from the early 5th century that retells the story of seven Palestinian monks traveling throughout Egypt to visit the various monastic centers. Again, there is a map and the usual social media avenues to help you to orient their trip. The source is intriguing to say the least. Written by a unanimous monk who was on a trip, personally, to his fellow monks in Palestine to show them how monasticism should be done. It was translated by Rufinius to Latin with his own additions based on his own travels. It was also translated into Syriac and Aramaic with minor differences. So there is like five versions with different details. 
Anyway, the book gives a first-hand account of what it'd be like to travel Egypt in the late 4th century, early 5th century, and visit all the monastic centers. A journey that is highly entertaining and full of interesting details of how the monastic life was. The traveling monks start recording their trip from Lycopolis, modern-day Asyut, at the south edge of Egypt, where they met the hermit John of Lycopolis. This is the same John from episode 20 that prophesies for Seudosius before his final battle. Then they move to Ishmonin, where they met a monastic head named Or in charge of a thousand monks. His monastery was built based on reclaiming agricultural land, and when a new brother was admitted, the group was able to build a mud brick house from him in a day, and gave him pacific clothes as a uniform. At this point, unlike today, there was not one set of monastic garb, but each group had its own rules regarding clothes. Next was an intriguing group led by a monk named Amun. This group wore sheepskin cloaks and had a veil on their face when they ate. It seems that they were different from the rest of the centers that the monks have visited, as they made it a point to highlight the cloak and the veil. Then the group met Bess, an elderly monk who was an expert in solving his village hippopotamus and crocodile problems. Next was a major city, Oxyronicus. Oxyronicus, modern day the village of Bahnessa, was an early Christian center of Egypt and one of the best documented places in Egypt due to its dry climbing, leaving lots of papyrus intact. By the 5th century, if we were to take the writing of the Palestinian monk at face value, a big F, it hosted 10,000 monks and 20,000 nuns. Now, this is likely an exaggeration, implying a large group of monks and nuns, rather than actual specific numbers. The city hosted 12 churches for the lay people, different from the monasteries that lay outside the city. We are told that the city was entirely Christian, was not a single pagan, where, quote, the bishop can't bless the people publicly on the street. The group then turns back to Upper Egypt, where they kept meeting holy men and women. There was Sion, an elderly monk who knew Greek, Coptic, and Latin, a seemingly rare skill based on the visitor's surprise. Another was Elias, a hermit just outside Antinois, the capital of the administrative district of Sebis. In addition to describing the various forms of monasticism, the visiting monks offer a glimpse on what motivated those men to the life of monasticism. For example, they tell the story of Apollo, who went to the rescue of a man conscripted by force to military service. There, not only he miraculously delivered him, all the guards of the prison ended up 
becoming monks? It does not take much to see that a life of a respected monk is much better than the life of a 5th century soldier. Apollo also solved disputes between villages and converted pagans. One notable incident is when pagans and Christian villagers fought over the boundaries of a Pacific village. Apollo then intervened with his 500 loyal monks and solved the dispute. We are told that the champion of the pagans died after he insulted Apollo, but the manner of this is not mentioned. The writer then stresses that he was the only casualty and none of the other pagans were harmed. Not only did the monasteries serve as pressure centers in the pagan community, they also served as a major support system for the Christian villages. The same Apollo was able to intervene when the crops failed for a village, and he supported them during this time. The trip then continues all the way to Nitria in the suburbs of Alexandria, giving us a clear picture on how monasticism was part of the Egyptian fabric and vital in the day-to-day -day life of the average Egyptians. One person that the Historia Mancorium does not mention is Shinuda, the Archimedrite. Archimedrite meaning a leading hermit. Shinuda was a highly influential monk. To be honest, he deserves his own episode. But my plan is to talk about him a bit now, and a bit in the next special episode about life in Byzantine Egypt, as he is a giant in the development of Coptic literature. Shinoda was the head of a monastery that is a part of the Bohemian Federation, named the White Monastery. His uncle has founded the White Monastery, and Shinoda followed him, enlarging it to make it the center of the Federation. His life spanned the late 4th century and into the first half of the 5th century. He was very strict, even more strict than Bohemius, and he left very detailed rules and instructions on how the monasteries should be run. At times, he could be a passionate man of God. At times, a tyrant when his orders are disobeyed. He clearly saw life on earth as a battle against evil, and he saw himself as a soldier battling on God's behalf. To give you a sense of how Shinoda was like, considering the following story about him from his disciple and the writer of his biography, a monk named Bisa, or Wisa. A man came to confess to Shinoda that he had followed a traveler and killed him because he carried a purse which the thief believed to be full of gold. But then he naively adds, I only found a single piece. Shinoda then instructs him to go where the ducks of Egypt were staying and stay with the prisoners that are due to be executed. And if he was asked if he's one of them, then the thief is to say, yes. To quote Shinoda directly, you will be put to death with them, and so God will receive you. 
into eternal life. He developed a relationship with Pope Cyril, which we will get to when we talk about Pope Cyril, hopefully next week. But sufficient to say, he was one of his biggest supporters. His influence was clearly felt, and the military official of the area consulted him and took his blessings. At the turn of the 5th century, Egypt borders were becoming chaotic. The Bilamis, the same tribe from the 3rd century, were making raids again in Upper Egypt, and the Berbers, a group of North African tribes, were raiding the Libyan-Egyptian frontier. The Bilamis directly affected Shinuda's white monastery. We are told at one of their large raids, 20,000 men, women, and children sought refugee behind the walls of the white monastery, where they were fed, closed by the monks, and all of their needs were taken care of. Thus, not only the monasteries served as walled fortresses that competent generals must take into their strategic calculation, their wealth and organization was put to good use to replace the traditional role of the government. That golden age of monasticism lasted until the end of the 5th century. Berber raids on Nitria and Scythus decimated the community and turned it into walled enclosures with limited numbers of monks. Additionally, the schism of the Council of Chalcedon inflicted a massive hit on the monastic communities, especially the Bohemian Federation. The monks were the most outspoken supporters of the Miaphysite theology, and as such, they became a target. When we get to Emperor Justinian by the 6th century, the Bohemian Federation would be pressured to accept the Council of Chalcedon, and many monks will abandon their monasteries and live as hermits rather than accept the council. Now, just to emphasize, the Golden Age would end by the end of the 5th century, but not monasticism itself. Monasticism is still alive and well today, and some would argue in a renaissance after almost a thousand year decline under Islam. But much more on that when we get there. To end this week episode, I'm going to quote a long passage from the Coptic Encyclopedia entry about monasticism that sums up the influence of Coptic monasticism on Christianity. Egyptian monasticism took an exemplary and normative significance. Everywhere people sought to take as their models the Egyptian masters, and it was through them that they came to be initiated into the monastic life. Rufinus and Melania the Elder, under way to found monasteries in Jerusalem, stopped and sojourned among the monks of Nitria toward 374 AD. Some 20 years earlier, St. Basil, who laid down the laws of monasticism in the Greek world, had made a journey among the monks of Egypt before himself was drawn into solitude at Aniso in Pontus. It is said of numerous monks in Mesopotamia that at the beginning of their monastic life 
they too went to visit the monks of Egypt. As for example, did Abraham the Great, founder of the great monastery of Mount Isla in the 6th century. The prestige and authority that Egyptian monasticism enjoyed were such that fictitious tales were circulated, the aim of which was to give local monasticism Egyptian origins in order to confer upon it a greater nobility. Such is the aim of the legend of Mar Egwen, who, an Egyptian by birth, and in his youth a disciple of Pachomius, is said to have imported monasticism into the region of Nisbis in the 4th century. The life of Hilarion, written by St. Jerome at Bethlehem towards 390 AD, arose even earlier from the intention of attaching Palestinian monasticism to St. Antony and the monasticism of Egypt. Monasticism left a profound mark on Coptic Christianity in its piety, its ethics, and its institutions. With few exceptions, down to our own day, the patriarch is chosen from among the clergy who come from the monks. But Egyptian monasticism, through the immense influence it exercised outside of Egypt, has set its stamp no less profoundly upon the church universal, in the west as well as in the east. This is certainly the most considerable legacy Egypt have left to Christianity. End quote. Farewell, and hopefully until next week. I have fallen behind in the research for various reasons, and I may have to skip a week or two to catch up. My apologies. I promise the narrative of Pope Cyril is worth the wait.